Before we turn our attention to the scriptures this morning, let me give you a word of gratitude and an opportunity for you. I want to take a moment and just thank you, uh, those who are part of our church with regularity, for your ongoing and continued generosity. I think last year, last fiscal year, was perhaps, uh, which finished at the end of April, I recognize, but was perhaps the largest giving year in Old North, certainly in recent history, if not in history, period. And we've seen just the continued and consistent generosity that, that we are growing in as a church family, both in our time and in our efforts, but also in our finances. And so I wanted to recognize that and thank you for that and encourage you to continue uh, to give generously to the Lord because he's been so generous with us. And with that, uh, once a month at our church, you might know that we have uh, an opportunity for what we call our Benevolent Fund offering. Our Benevolent Fund is an offering that we take uh, to help meet the physical needs of people in our church family. You can imagine a church family this size. There are, uh, some of us might be experiencing uh, great success, while at the same time others have great need. And so we help each other in this way, minister to each other in the body, and one of the ways that we do that is through the Benevolent Fund. This month, we are going to do something a little bit different. We are not going to apply the Benevolent Fund to our church family directly, but rather to a group of pastors that we support uh, in a variety of ways overseas in Kenya. Many of you know that uh, our sister Carol Perkins goes to Kenya multiple times a year working with churches among the Maasai tribe, and that tribe right now is experiencing very significant drought. Uh, so much so that it's difficult uh, to find water and food. And many of our pastors uh, that we have invested in significantly have great need. And so Carol is sort of making a last-minute trip this week uh, to go over and to do some relief work. And we want to help support her and help support those pastors to the best of our abilities. And so if you want to give to the Benevolent Fund this week, uh, you can do so, and the boxes on the way out the door this morning, you can make checks out to Old North Church or to Africa Health and Hope, either one, and we'll make sure that those indeed get on to the pastors and their families in Kenya. And if you wish to participate in an even greater sense in the helping of building wells, which we have done among that tribe for the last number of years now, you can do that through that benevolent fund as well. Let's pray together, shall we, as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word and how in your word you show us more and more of who you are and how you work. And as you apply your word to our hearing, you shape our hearts by it and you mold our minds. And so we pray that you would be doing that even now by the power of your spirit. Amen. Please grab a Bible and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And while you're turning there to page 243, I want you to think with me for a moment about the nature of broken promises. You know, broken promises can be one of the most costly things in a relationship. And the consequences of broken promises can be rather significant or incredibly damaging for the person who is relying on the other to come through. I wonder if you can think of a time when you have broken a promise. 
I'm sure it's probably easier to think of a time when somebody has broken a promise to you. I can't tell you how many times I've heard children say, I promise, Dad, I will never do that again. Or how many times maybe we've said, God, I promise, I will never do that again. Or how about many of the broken promises that are so common for us in our time today, whether that's the promise of a promotion or a raise at a job that never comes, or perhaps the promises of those running for political office that we've become cynical to. I promise that if I'm elected to this post, I am going to change this town, or perhaps the promise of the one who's going on the diet. Just one more day until I begin. I promise. But there's a difference between those commonly broken promises that we have somehow become automatically suspicious of and the times when one is truly relying on you to come through with your promise. If the promise is kept or if the promise is broken, someone's life is going to change because they are relying upon it. David was on the run for his life, and he was relying on a promise. And if this promise was kept, he would have a chance to live. And if this promise was broken, it was most likely that he would die. And this was no casual sort of promise. It was much more significant than that. In fact, this was the type of promise that knit two people together for the rest of their lives. So I want to ask you to follow with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 20. And before I do, I recognize 1 Samuel chapter 20 is long. <laughs> it's very long. And so I want to ask you to exercise some mental toughness with me. But the story itself, I don't think will have difficulty holding your attention. So follow with me as we read, starting in verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah, and he came and he said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father, my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. Truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at a table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all... Then say, David earnestly asked, me, asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is, 
know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt with me, then kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So that they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan made David swear by his love for him. He loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy saying, Go find the arrows. And if I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come for, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away, and as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat to eat food, and the king sat on his seat, and as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brothers have commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? 
For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for surely he will die. And then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, don't stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The king was trying to kill the one who would eventually take the throne. The king is a father who is trying to kill his son's best friend. The king, as the episode continues, eventually tries to kill his very own son. And the episode concludes with his son and his best friend, Jonathan and with David, hugging and weeping and going their separate ways. This is an account wrought with fear and persecution and loyalty and intense emotion. And perhaps one of the first observations we make about this story is the nature of the deep commitment and even spiritual friendship that these two men, Jonathan and David, have with one another. Throughout, actually, the story of 1 Samuel, we see that there is a unique bond between these two men. I mean, remember, Jonathan is the heir to the throne, but David is God's chosen who will take the throne. So if there is anybody who should desire the demise of David, it is indeed Jonathan. And yet, he is in the position between having to choose between his father 
and his friend. Of having to choose between his kingdom and God's chosen king. And we see that they're uniquely knit together. A couple chapters ago, in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. In chapter 19, we see that Jonathan spoke well of David into the ear of King Saul as Saul was seeking to kill David. And here in chapter 20, Jonathan is in the position of having to choose between his father and his friend, his king and God's his kingdom and God's chosen king. And Jonathan contends again for David. He risks his own safety and his own future for David's safety and for David's future. These two are uniquely knit together. And the reason why is simultaneously very simple and very profound. David and Jonathan are knit together because what we see in them both is they are both seeking the Lord above everything else in their life. And their mutual seeking of the Lord means that they become bound together even more closely than blood relatives. This idea of being knit together in this way is mentioned in other places in the scripture. The Apostle Paul mentions something along these lines in Colossians chapter 2. He's speaking about the struggles of Christians and he prays in chapter 2 verse 1 that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Surely this is what Jesus is referring to when he gives a rather dramatic teaching in Luke chapter 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is clearly using hyperbole or exaggeration to describe having a desire for the Lord above all other loyalties in this life. Even the loyalties of our families. Even the loyalties of our blood relatives. When you get to know people who have those types of eternal purposes in mind, then they become the closest people to you in your life. You're seeking the same thing. You're relying on the same person, the Lord Jesus. And the truths that bind you to one another are much greater than mutual interests or shared hobbies or being in the same season of life because your kids are the same age. The purposes that bind you together are of the greatest significance because those purposes are eternal. And David and Jonathan are uniquely bound together in this type of spiritual friendship because they're seeking the Lord. But it's not just friendship that binds them together. 
It's not just friendship that provides their security in this relationship. What we see here is what also binds them together, and even in a greater sense, is a covenant. Look at the story with me. Saul wants to kill David. Immediately, David comes to Jonathan, his son, and asks what he's done. He says in verse 1 and 2, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? (laughs) If you've ever been falsely accused, you can feel the type of emotion that is embedded in that inquiry. And so they concoct a plan together to gauge the temperature of Saul toward David. David will miss the planned feast, and as he misses the meals, if Saul takes notice but doesn't seem to care, then he is in positive standing with David. But if Saul is angry, then the intent to kill becomes evident. Now, if you're David and Saul has already tried to kill you a couple of times, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't think this is a very good plan. (laughs) And if you're David and Saul has already tried to kill you a couple of times, but now his son, Jonathan, your friend, is coming to you and saying, he doesn't want to kill you. He doesn't want to kill you. Surely he doesn't want to kill you. You're not only questioning the plan. You're also questioning the messenger. And you're questioning your friendship. But what we see is that the hinge of this whole passage turns in verse 8. Look at it with me. The key to defining their interaction is found right here as David is speaking to Jonathan and he says in verse 8, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This is more than a promise. This is more than friendship. A covenant is a binding agreement with certain actions or stipulations between the two parties and with God in the middle. To make a covenant meant that these two were knit together in a greater fashion than friendship, in a greater fashion than even partnership. It meant the Lord would judge between the two of them should the stipulations of the covenant be broken. This covenant we saw first mentioned in, back in chapter 18 Right after the soul of Jonathan being knit to the soul of David, it said that Jonathan made a covenant with David. In verse 3. And he gave David his robe and his armor and even his sword and his belt. It was as if Jonathan, the heir to the throne, was saying to his friend David, I promise that I am with you and for you, and as a sign of the promise, here is the royal robe. (laughs) Here is the regalia. Here are my weapons. They're now yours. Here he says in verse 12, Jonathan says to David, 
The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness between you and me. And then they renew this covenant together. It says in verse 13, let me reread it for you quickly. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in peace. Listen carefully. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here, when under great duress, David calls upon Jonathan to remember the covenant that they have made days, weeks, months, maybe years earlier. We don't know. And they renew that covenant right there. And the renewal of the covenant has really three features to it. Number one, Jonathan says to David in verse 13, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now you should be asking all kinds of questions about that. How has the Lord been with Saul? <laughs> most of Saul's reign, he really hasn't. But the main way that the Lord has been with Saul is by instilling him or installing him as the king of the land. Jonathan is saying to David, may the Lord make you king. The heir to the throne is recognizing the future kingship of his friend. And then he says, if I'm still alive, show me your steadfast love of the Lord. Show me your hesed. <laughs> that word, a particular word, is the word for loving kindness or steadfast love. It's applied to God. It has in it the nature of God's love toward his people that has a level of loyalty and commitment and kindness and blessing, that God shows hesed or loving kindness to his people throughout their history, through all of their ups and downs, and one of the unique features of the God of Israel compared to all the other foreign deities and idols is that God, Yahweh, interacts with his people in this way. And here Jonathan calls upon David because his future is uncertain, because his kingship is now gone, to say, show me that same kind of loving kindness. And then, thirdly, we see that he makes the covenant with David, and he says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Who are David's enemies? His father. Jonathan, makes the covenant with the future king at the cost of his own family because he's seeking the Lord. And David needs the assurance of the covenant 
And so what you see is that with the threat of certain death, <laughs> David has security in the covenant. And with the threat of an unknown future, Jonathan has security in the covenant. The story continues. The plan is enacted. David is absent from dinner. Saul desires to know where he is, not after the first day, but after he's absent for the second day. And he begins to sense Jonathan's allegiance toward David that is greater than his allegiance toward himself. And it says in verse 30 that his anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Now let's take a step back. Guys, guys, there are a lot of ways to discipline your children. But insulting your wife while disciplining your children, generally not a good call. Saul gets so angry that he not only seeks David's life, but he flings the spear at his own son and now seeks to kill Jonathan as well. And the story concludes with Jonathan leaving the next day going to the field, shooting the arrows, the boy retrieves them, and the two meet. And it says in verse 41 that David rose from beside the stone heap, he fell on his face to the ground, and he bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Jonathan said to him, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying that the Lord shall be between me and you, between your offspring and mine, forever. And he rose and he departed, and Jonathan went into the city. With the threat of certain death, David has security in the covenant. With the threat of an unknown future, Jonathan has security in the covenant. And there are a variety of implications this passage has for us today, but by far the most important is this. David's reliance on the covenant for his security and Jonathan's reliance on the covenant for his future points us to our reliance on a covenant for our security and for our future. It's called the new covenant. With the threat of certain death, you have security in the new covenant. Because, you see, God has related to his people throughout history by covenants, by promises, by binding agreement. And in Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Old Testament, he introduces a new covenant. It would be the covenant that would last for the rest of humanity. It would be a covenant that was enacted through his son, Jesus. It's a covenant that binds God's promises to us today, and it provides us with tremendous security now, and it provides us with an eternal hope and an eternal future beyond this life. Jeremiah 31, let me read part of that covenant to you. The prophet stands and he speaks to Israel hundreds of years before Jesus comes, announcing this new covenant 
He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant is the pledge of God. It's the pledge of God to forgive your sins through faith in his son Jesus. It is the pledge of God to write his desires, his laws on your heart which we know comes through the Holy Spirit. And it is the pledge of God to make you his people forever. This new covenant is enacted by the death of the Lord Jesus. A couple days before his death, Jesus is with his disciples, having what is called the Last Supper. And Jesus points them to the fact that a covenant is being enacted. He says in Matthew chapter 26, he took the cup and we had given thanks to them. He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This new covenant is secured through Jesus' resurrection. Hebrews chapter 13 gives one of my favorite benedictions in the Bible. And at the beginning of that benediction, the writer of Hebrews says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. With the threat of certain death, we have security in the new covenant. This new covenant is a covenant of grace. And it's accessed only by faith, not by what you do, only by who you believe in. Historically, a covenant is a promise or a binding agreement that has rules and requirements for it. And if the stipulations of the covenant are broken, the covenant is considered to be null and void. But the new covenant is a covenant in which God both sets out the stipulations, the rules, the actions, and then he accomplishes them for us. God does all the work. We get all the benefit. That's the new covenant. And he does that completely based on his grace, fueled by his steadfast love for us, accessed by faith in Jesus. Now, many of us will say, I don't know if that even makes sense, or I don't even know if I like receiving something so freely and so graciously, I want to earn my keep. 
And so we think to ourselves, well, we're going to try to do better to earn our salvation. But here's the thing. To seek to earn your salvation, to merit or to purchase it from God, becomes an insult to the giver of grace. Imagine yourself invited to a banquet at the White House, maybe a Fourth of July banquet this last week, in which you go and you enjoy some of the finest cuisine, and every effort is made to make sure that you are comfortable and that you enjoy your time and that the experience is beyond what you've had before. And at the end of the lovely visit, the president stands at the front door and he shakes your hand to give you goodbye. What do you do in that moment? As you leave, do you quickly reach into your pocket and firmly press a $20 bill into his hand? Say, thank you, Mr. President. This was a lovely evening, and I know it must have been very expensive. Let me help offset the cost. Here's a little bit of money on the way out the door. Now, that might come from a place of very good motives. But is that a proper response to his kindness? On the contrary, it's actually rude and insulting in the gesture. And so it would be with God's grace. Because with the threat of certain death, we have security in the new covenant. And there are wonderful implications of this new covenant for you. Let me list a couple of them just very quickly. The first is that in the face of certain spiritual death, God extends grace to you and promises to forgive you. What that means practically is that when the weight of your sin rests upon your shoulders, when you lie in bed at night staring up at the ceiling thinking about the day and all of the things that you've done wrong, just wishing for a do-over again, when it becomes unbearable to you because you can't seem to get yourself out of these destructive habits and patterns that are sinful and pull yourself into a new place. The implication of the new covenant for you is that God extends grace and he promises to forgive you. Another implication of this new covenant for you is that in the face of certain physical death, there is eternal life for you beyond the grave. Romans 6.8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And there is, you know this, there is a noticeable difference between attending the funeral of somebody who knows the Lord Jesus and someone who doesn't. Someone who has a sure and certain hope for the future beyond the grave and someone that just questions what happens next. There's a difference when you know the Lord and you know what's coming because we all face physical death, but that physical death is not the end. There's a life beyond the grave. And for those who know him, they are secure. Another implication, of course, is that when we face the ongoing struggles of this life, our hope to overcome those struggles is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that's why the hymn writer of that famous hymn goes on to say, or to sing, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. A fourth implication of this new covenant for you is that because groups of Christians are made up of a local church and this local church is a bunch of individuals who are bound to God by a covenant. It means that we are also bound to each other by the same covenant. And that's why when we celebrate that covenant as a church by taking the Lord's Supper, we don't take it individually. We don't take it at home. We take it together because we're bound together. It's why the church is often referred to as a family <laughs> and functions like a family. It's why membership in a local church, the formalizing commitment of that covenant relationship becomes important to these people who are bound or knit together. Because with the threat of certain death, you have security in the new covenant. And the fifth implication is very simply this. Because God is so gracious to me in this covenant, we are motivated to be gracious and to live for him. <laughs> because God sacrifices for me, <laughs> I'm motivated to sacrifice for him, not to earn, but as a response. Because God is generous to me, I am motivated to be generous as well. Because God is loving to me, I am motivated to be loving as well. Because God is so faithful to me through all of my ups and downs and lefts and rights of this life, I am motivated to pursue faithfulness to Him. Queen Victoria once attended a service in St. Paul's Cathedral and listened to a sermon that interest her, interested her greatly. And afterwards, she asked her personal chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety. And his answer was that he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure. This incident was published in the court news and came to the notice of the minister named John Townsend. And after reading Queen Victoria's question and the answer she received, he prayed and then sent the following note to the queen. To her gracious majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heart-filled love, because I know that we can be absolutely sure now of our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, I may ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passages of Scripture. John 3.16 Romans 10, 9 and 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. 
two weeks later, he received the following letter to John Townsend. I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of scripture referred to, and I believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria. And after Queen Victoria's discovery of Christian assurance, it is said that she used to carry a small booklet to give away. Its title was Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. That is what she found, and that is what you can have in Christ. With the threat of certain death, we have security in the new covenant. And this is great news if you are here today and you don't know where you stand with God. Maybe you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you don't know what happens in the future next. You have the opportunity to ask God to forgive you based on the work of his son Jesus and put your trust in him. And he binds himself to you in this covenant. This is great news for those of you who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus. Because through all of the ups and downs and uncertainties of the days, you know that God has bound himself to you in a covenant. And that with the threats of this life and the uncertain future that is to come, you have security in this new covenant. Friend, is that covenant that we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together? It is that covenant that we're reminded of through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we take the Lord's Supper, the bread symbolizing his body broken and his blood symbolized in the cup that is shed. It's the sign and ongoing recommitment of the covenant. And so I want to ask you to pray with me before our ushers come. And thank God for his work in this covenant. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, the fact that you bind yourself to us and then accomplish all of the work of this promise solely based on your grace is something we thank you for. God, we worship you because you do things that we cannot do for ourselves. You give in a way that we cannot earn for ourselves. Your grace and loving kindness to us are made manifest in the ongoing stay of this covenant and the overwhelming generosity therein. And so as we remember Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, but raised again, today we reaffirm our faith in him and take benefit of the nature of this covenant.